you'd like to, let me invite you to open your Bibles. We have Bibles on the pews. If anybody, by the way, needs a Bible anytime, especially if you see visitors here, just uh, invite them to take these on the pew. And let me, um, let me open with a word of prayer before we read this. We're opening to Acts chapter 9, verse 23. Heavenly Father, now may the... Uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Acts chapter 9, 23 um, continues in, in our teaching here. And we've, we've been going through a section of, of Acts that's really been characterized by persecution in the early church. And... Um, Saul, this leader of the Jewish people, was really at the, the heart of this, this persecution against the, um, the new believers as they were in Jerusalem. And then even as it spread out into various places in Judea and Samaria and, and even uh, the region of Galilee, these regions nearby, this, uh, this persecution impacts the church and and now we come to a section that just kind of draws this, this, this period of persecution in particular to a close. Let me read, starting in verse 23, Acts chapter 9, verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, that is Saul. But their plot became known to Saul... And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he saw had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples there. But they were all afraid of him, and for they, had, they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road to Damascus he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God will stand forever. It's kind of an interesting passage to preach from because it, it draws together a, to a close kind of this, this period and it gives us just some, some interesting narrative about Saul. Right? It, it tells us that the words that Jesus said to him were fulfilled. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, you have persecuted me, but... Now you will be persecuted because of my name. 
sure enough, in two cities, both Damascus and Jerusalem, Saul is persecuted and suffers because of the name of Jesus. It's easy to, to come to this and say, well, okay, this is a sermon about being like Saul, right? We all just need to be more bold, like Saul was. It says twice that he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. And I think all of us can recognize that when it comes to speaking to our neighbors and friends and co-workers, we find ourselves oftentimes timid or afraid to mention the name of, of Jesus. So we need to be like Saul, it would seem. But, but I don't think that's what Luke, who was writing the account of Acts and who had been with, with Saul, really had in mind per se. Sure, we all need to be more bold or free in our speech. The word boldness here is also freely speaking about Jesus. I think rather what's happening here is that Luke, when he comes to the end of this time of persecution, he's offering us some some caveats. You ever notice that preachers who... They, they want to teach you all the details. And so when they come to a passage, they always say, well, this is what it means, but, but don't do this, right? They caveat everything. It just kind of gets annoying. It just, it's a little bit too much. It's trying to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and really it just ends up being pedantic, kind of laborsome. But I think, I think Luke is wanting to cross some of those I's, or cross some of the T's and dot some of the I's. When he's talking about what, what was going on here in, in Saul hitting this persecution, in the church facing these struggles. And I think he brings up in his conclusion some, some corrections, some, some myths that he, he'd like to, to break as he draws this to a close. Now, I've got four myths here, and really the last three are, are the ones that Saul's talking about in particular. The first one is just sort of one that I think is, is interesting that it occurs in this, this part of the text. Briefly, it says, When many days had passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now let me ask you, a pull of hands here. How many do you think many means? Right? How, many, how many days do you think many days means? You think, alright, who, who thinks it's, it's like zero to ten? Alright? I'm not going to make you look bad here. Who thinks it's more like ten to, to sixty? Ten to sixty. Who thinks it's, it's sixty to a year? Right? And who thinks it's more than a year? Anybody else? I mean, this is a, this is a tough question because many seems like it's a, a pretty vague term. But I want you to look back with me at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I can read it. Pardon me. I thought I should have had it marked. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. Right in the middle there. Paul now, he's changed his name from Saul to Paul, and he's writing a letter to the Galatians. This, by the way, is an early letter in his life, and so it's not far long after this. He's speaking about his conversion on the road to Damascus. He says, The Lord was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem from Damascus to those who were apostles before me. But I I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Arabia sounds like it's a long way from Damascus, but really the Arabian desert comes right up against Damascus in these days. So he went out kind of in the wilderness like Jesus was known to do. And then, after three years... I went up to Jerusalem. Now, so you catch that? How many is many? It's actually three years. Three years he spent in Damascus. He went a little bit into Arabia, probably a little bit more than... So why does, why does Luke not tell us that he spent three years in Damascus? I think, here's myth number one. That, that the, Bible, the, the Bible gives us all the details. Right? It speaks precisely on every point. See, the Bible gives us all the details that we need. And especially when we know the whole of the Bible and we can understand one passage in context with other passages. It's reason to study the whole of the Bible. But even more specific than that, the Bible gives us all the details that we need in each occasion, each letter, each writing to communicate the author's intended purpose. Right? Every time we read something in the Bible, there's there's There was a reason that the author wrote those words to communicate to the people that he was writing to. And so as Luke is writing this passage, he has a particular audience in mind, and he has a particular purpose in mind, and his concern isn't that they know that he was in Damascus for three years. It was that we know that he spent some time in Damascus. Some time growing and learning. Enough time even that in verse 25 we see that his disciples, Saul's disciples, not Jesus' disciples, but Saul's disciples, they were following Jesus as well, but Saul spent enough time there to have disciples. Now, Luke's intention was to wrap up this section of persecution and then to to communicate, to bring us to, to another myth buster here. And that is the second myth, that if we were all bold like Saul, 
the church would grow with leaps and bounds. Right? Or maybe a, a myth that's like it, that if we all suffered persecution like Saul did, or like the early church did, then we'd really grow, right? Growth really happens in persecution, and growth really happens when we're all bold. But listen to what happens in verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, if the meaning of this passage was we needed to be bold and endure in persecution, then it would seem that what people should be doing there would be stepping up and taking Paul's place after he left for Caesarea and being bold and confronting people and, and, and experiencing more persecution. But what happens is that after Saul leaves, the church experiences growth. Right? The Holy Spirit is at work in those places. Sometimes it's easy for us to romanticize that, you know, this boldness and this, this persecution, man, that would be where it happened. You know, it's like in, in China, when in the, particularly in the 40s and 50s, the, the government really cracked down on religion. And the church continued to, and the missionaries left. And the church continued to grow and flourish. And we hear stories like a, a missionary who was in Asia who, you know, brought his family to this village and it seemed like he was making headway and then he started to tell them things that went against their witchcraft and the missionary and his whole family were killed by the tribe and later the tribe ends up believing and confessing and repenting of their sin we think man if I was only like that missionary willing to be bold and go to foreign country and suffer persecution then the church would grow. But the truth is that God calls some people at some times in some particular places to face this type of persecution, just as Psalm did. But others, He calls to places of peace. He calls to be good citizens obeying the law. He gives periods where they have peace and where they can be built up on the foundation of Jesus and where they can walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and be multiplied. There's a third myth that I think is brought out here. Not explicitly by Luke, but it, 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 it's a point that's made well by Luke here. And that is if we would only trust one another in the church more. If we would only trust one another and believe one another, then the church would also see growth. But I want you to notice that what happened here when, when Saul went to Jerusalem. And it says the disciples, that is the believers in Jesus, the general population that were in Jerusalem in verse 26, they were afraid of him. They didn't believe that Saul, this persecutor of the church, was actually a disciple. And yet this man, Barnabas, he comes and it says, 
he took him. Really, it kind of says he took hold of him, almost like grabbing him by the collar from the crowds, and he, he brought him in front of the apostles, the leaders of the church. And Barnabas says, no, listen, here's what I saw Saul doing in Damascus. For three years he's been proclaiming that Jesus is Lord just as you have been doing this. And you remember from a couple weeks ago that when, or last week, when Saul is converted in Jerusalem, I mean in Damascus, Jesus also sent Ananias to go and lay his hand on Saul and say, Brother, and then with the disciples there, he said, no, you need to listen to Saul because Jesus met him and he converted him. And Barnabas and Ananias were valuable witnesses who testified to the legitimacy of Saul. Right? The disciples who were in both the place, the cities of Damascus and Jerusalem, they were wise to, to doubt, to question, is Saul just trying to draw us out here and to, to trick us so that he can persecute us more? But God brings these people like Ananias and Barnabas into our lives to testify, to say, yeah, he's telling the truth. But you notice it wasn't just Barnabas who was saying that, yeah, Saul is telling the truth. Barnabas took Saul to the apostles, to the elders of the church, and said, no, elders, here, I'm going to testify with Saul that we're telling the truth. And the elders of the church, the apostles of the church said, yes, this man is telling the truth. Yes, I believe this testimony because he's testifying and I hear the witness of another. And they tell it to the believers. It's an important step in the in the process of the church that we look not just to others to tell us the truth, but we hear from witnesses around us that this is the truth. But it doesn't stop there. I think the call is for us to be willing to be a Barnabas. And when we see somebody like Saul... We say, man, his background says everything else, but I hear him proclaiming Jesus. I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen to his teaching. I'm going to see how his, the works of his life, how the actions of his life play out and the other people around him. And then I'm going to be willing to stand by him when he goes someplace else where he's not known. I'm even going to go to the elders of the church like, they, like Barnabas did to the apostles. Say, I'm going I'm to vouch for him. I'm going to put my reputation on the line so I can vouch for this other person who no one would expect that God was going to use just as no one expected that God would use Saul. Fourth risk, or the fourth myth, is that everything in this time was being done by miracles. And so it's tough for us to relate to the time of the apostles because God was showing these wonderful acts of healing by miracles and these wonderful acts of rescuing people out of prisons by miracles. Man, we don't live in that kind of time. I mean, now we don't see these miracles. We don't have God showing himself and speaking audibly to people. I mean, this is 
this is tough for me. I, I don't see how to correlate the two, right? How, what to do with this teaching? I want you to notice two things that happen. And that is that Saul is rescued from the hands of those who would want to kill him. Not once, but twice. Not in one city, but in two cities. In Damascus first, and then in Jerusalem. I want you to notice that in both cases, Saul is rescued by the hands of people and not by the miracle or miracles of God. Right in verse 25, his disciples took him by night and they led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I mean, can you imagine being lowered in a big basket out of the city wall through a window? I mean, it's a little bit humbling when you think about it, right? The basket wasn't big enough probably for him to stand and kind of boldly descend down the wall. He's probably cowering in the basket, ducking down in a very undignified kind of posture. Being rescued by the disciples, the hands of people. And then again in Jerusalem, when the Hellenists, who by the way, were evidently pretty violent, right? They were the ones who put Stephen to death. They were the ones that Saul associated with when Stephen was put to death. Now they turn on Saul. It says in the second half of verse 29, when they were seeking to kill him, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Caesarea was the major port city, the, the nearest port city. They took him to the port city, they put him on a boat, and they sent him to his hometown so that his family could take care of him for a time. It's the most human of escapes possible. It's not God breaking open the doors by the hands of an angel. It's not Him tearing down the walls of the prison. It's God using the acts of people like you and me to rescue one of His disciples. I hope by this point some of the myths are are breaking down in your minds if they weren't already. But also that you're asking the question, where is Jesus in this sermon? Right? I've broken down all these myths, but where is Jesus in this teaching? I think Jesus is in this teaching in the very human acts He lived in His life leading up to the time that He died on the cross. We speak of the amazing work that He did on the cross and the miracle He worked in His own life in raising Himself from the dead. But we oftentimes forget about the works that Jesus did in His life in year one and two 
and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 30, 31, 32, 33. Some of the time he raised a ruckus. Some of the time he experienced persecution. Other times he lived in peace with his family. Other times he lived in peace with his disciples, teaching them and going from place to place. All the time, he obeyed God's commands perfectly. All the time, he avoided sin and didn't fall prey to the temptation that we often are tempted to. All the time, he was being prepared and preparing himself to be not just any sacrifice, but a sacrifice who had never sinned. A sacrifice who had never been marred. Never been made imperfect. A sacrifice that would be acceptable to God by the very real life the very normal life in some senses. And also the life that wasn't marred when he faced temptation or persecution so that he could die a perfect death that would pay the necessary price to cover all of our sins. So I hope this is helpful. It's more of a teaching than a sermon. I know today it's some myths that are, are drawing from different parts of Scripture. But I hope these myths of Scripture being full of all the details. And we were just, if we were just all bold like Saul, the church would grow. And if we just would trust one another more, we'd be fine. Or everything was being done by miracles and not by the hands of men. Hopefully these these myths can start to be broken away in our lives and we would better understand how to read the Scripture and how to live our lives in boldness when it's called for, but also in humility and in places of, of peace when God gives them to us. Knowing when to trust people and when to be witnesses for others. And also being equipped to do the work of God by the hands and feet He's given us and not depend always on miracles that God can and still does work but doesn't always use to accomplish His purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this passage that wraps up this period of persecution. For the reminder that You give us times of peace and times when so writers of the King James Version even said, times of rest. Times of rest that you use to build us up and even multiply our numbers. May we enjoy those times of rest. To read your scriptures so that we would better understand them and their purposes that the authors intended. To know how to discern truth from lie and to bear witness to those telling the truth and to know more and more of your salvation 
every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen.